Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. Today we're asking the question, would Jesus identify as an evangelical? Evangelicalism seems to have a massive PR problem. You probably read the same news that I do. High-profile scandals, a loud voice in the culture wars, and behaviour that doesn't line up with the historical Jesus. Christianity and hypocrisy have seemingly become an entrenched conversation in the wider culture, especially if you follow US politics. It's a constant reason why people understandably reject Christianity, and so I wanted to discuss to what extent the perception lines up with the reality, and more importantly, how evangelicalism as a broad movement lines up with the central figure of Christianity, Christ and his teachings. help people consider Jesus. Who was Jesus? What was his message? Am I going to follow him or not? That is the great commission of the church, not to create a Christian country, not to get your way by political power and political means. These things, not only are they antithetical to the teaching of Jesus, but they actually make it impossible to fulfill the great commission. Constantine Campbell, or Con is Professor and Associate Research Director at the Sydney College of Divinity and previously served as Professor of New Testament Studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago and Moore Theological College in Sydney. His doctorate is in Ancient Greek Language and Linguistics, which he completed at Macquarie University in 2007. Con is the author of 16 books with a focus on Ancient Greek and New Testament interpretation and the Apostle Paul in particular. He was also the co-chair of the Biblical Greek Language and Linguistic section of the Society of Biblical Literature. He's an associate editor of the Zondervan Exegetical Commentary Series. He's an elected member of the preeminent scholarly guild, Studorium Novi Testamenti Societas. Or for us mortals who don't speak angel, the Society for New Testament Studies. He's one of the big hitters in the evangelical scholarly world. And his latest book, Jesus vs. Evangelicals, has caused a bit of a stir in church circles. But it's no doubt of interest to people outside of Christianity too, especially if you're one of those people who have experienced it firsthand and are repelled by evangelical hypocrisy. So we had to invite him on to discuss it together. Con is also a highly regarded jazz saxophonist and is a visiting instructor at the Australian National University School of Music and regularly plays in front of live audiences. Con Campbell, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Aaron. So I want to start by asking about your music. I vividly remember my high school music classrooms being plastered with uh, with posters that specifically said jazz is cool. <laughs> uh, normally when something feels the need to make the case that it's cool, it's not normally that cool. <laughs> so my question is, when did you first come to believe that jazz was in fact cool? And what's it like being a professional saxophonist? Well, I got into jazz because I was um, learning saxophone. i I mean, I started on piano when I was about five and then um, moved to saxophone when I was about 12. And the more seriously I got into it, I would want to hear good saxophone players and, and a lot of them were jazz musicians. So I started listening for the saxophone, but, but after a while got in more into the jazz and jazz just sort of took over. I didn't really care if it was cool. I, I don't think it was particularly cool in high school. I didn't care. And uh, that was good preparation for being a Christian, actually. And what's it like to be a professional jazz musician? Uh, I don't know what's it like not to be. I haven't experienced the other, so I'm not really sure. Yeah, just been part of the deal for you. It's something I enjoy and love, and jazz is a great community of people, both listeners and performers, mm. and it's a really amazing global music. Yeah. I'll just add that I did eventually get into things like John Coltrane and Miles Davis, so I'm not totally, totally oh, there you go. to jazz. Um, 
oh, so you already know jazz is cool. I didn't have to make the case. <laughs> yeah, some parts of it, sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So not only do you understand the language of jazz, but you also understand another foreign language, uh, that of ancient Greek. Mm. When Christians go through seminary to train for ministry, we all go in with these kind of lofty ambitions to keep up with our Greek and our Hebrew. Mm. But you're one of the few that's actually stuck to it, which is super admirable. Uh, But could you tell us, particularly from people from a non-faith background, why learning the original language of the Bible has been something to commit your entire academic career to? Well, I didn't go into it with that intention. I uh, went into it so that I could read the New Testament as it was written originally by its authors rather than reading translations. So often one of the caricatures of, of the Bible is that it's handed down over generations and generations and through translations and translations, and now what we have now is is really distorted from the original. The, the truth couldn't be further from that. Um, in fact, you know, one of the things you do when you study at seminary or Bible college is is to read Paul's letters, for example, with the words that he wrote, and that's an extraordinary thing. You're not filtered through someone else's translation or translation committee, uh, but you're actually reading it because he wrote in Greek. Um, you're reading it in the Greek, same with the Gospels and the whole New Testament. So I found it very exciting. And one of the things I was most looking forward to for my in my training was to be able to read the New Testament for myself, the Greek New Testament, the original New Testament for myself. I got into it pretty hardcore because I guess you mentioned jazz as a language. Greek's obviously a language. It's something clicked. And uh, my discipline actually in jazz and practicing saxophone and scales and all that stuff it did actually help to get on top of the language. But We study Greek in seminary or Bible college for the same reasons that anyone who becomes, even if you do an undergraduate degree in ancient history, you would normally study, depending on the period, but if you're going to do the classical period, you would study Latin and you would study ancient Greek because the primary texts are written in in those languages. Um, So it's sort of a standard academic practice that if we're serious about the source texts, then we'll want to read them as originally written, not simply to read translation. And it's nothing wrong with translation, but it's a, it's a matter of, you know, how seriously do you want to take these texts? You've written quite a number of technical academic books, um, particularly looking at the writings of St. Paul in the Bible. And here you've taken quite a step out from your normal scholarly work. I, I love that you put your acknowledgements at the front of the book uh, and you open by saying, this was a risky book to write, um, which seems like quite the understatement in my opinion. So first, thanks for writing uh, your book, Jesus versus Evangelicals. And secondly, why did you decide to write a, a book on the, the wider evangelical culture and politics in particular? Yeah, well, uh, I guess I've been a long-time quiet critic of some elements of evangelicalism. I mean, I became a Christian in the evangelical church. My trainings, you know, in that world and I've served as professor in institutions that would regard themselves as evangelical. I've preached in dozens and dozens of churches that are evangelical, and and I've published books with evangelical publishing houses, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I sort of have that heritage and background. I'm not simply like an outsider throwing stones uh, at a movement I think is nasty and I don't like very much. You know, many of the people who are most dear to me in my life would regard themselves as evangelicals. Uh, And I've learned a lot and respect so many people who are in that world. So, you know, in in that respect, it's difficult because the book is a critique 
And this is one of the problems. If you're not able to do some self-critique, if you're not able to assess the movement that you're in and the crowd that you run in with honesty and with openness, then that's when you start to get into trouble. You know, that's when things can go off the rails and no one is going to pull you back on the rails because anyone on the outside, you sort of don't have to listen to. You can say, oh, well, whatever, you don't understand us. You know, uh, we, we're doing fine. Thanks very much. If people on the inside also aren't able to say things to speak up, then you've really got a problem. So I guess over the years, and especially my time living in the US and teaching over there, just became quite alarmed with a number of features of especially American, but not only American evangelicalism. And, you know, in the end, I just thought, well, that's, I'm just going to have to write a book about this, as you do. Yeah. <laughs> the, the quiet way to, uh, to disagree is to write a book. Yeah. So um, let's not beat around the bush about the topic of it. The, the book is primarily about Christian hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And some would say that evangelicalism and hypocrisy have become quite synonymous, um, where you can't have one without the other. Mm. So maybe do you want to tell us uh, your take on the state of evangelicalism, both as a label and as a movement? Yeah, sure. Well, the charge of hypocrisy is warranted, sadly, for a range of issues. But I think particularly, you know, it really came to the surface with the overwhelming white evangelical support of Donald Trump in the United States. So when yeah. 84% of white evangelicals voted to re-elect Donald Trump, and this is after a term where you already got to see what he was like as a president, as a commander-in-chief, full of lies, full of distortion, full of attacking the enemy, just totally anti-Christian sort of values, then evangelicals are rightly perceived as hypocritical because Jesus taught his followers to love your neighbor and to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. Uh, he was gentle and humble. And I think the overwhelming message of Christianity, the overwhelming vision even is a better term of Christianity is love. Absolutely. And when you're being represented by, you're choosing to be represented by someone who really embodies the antithesis of that, then you know, rightly, I think, should evangelicals be called um, hypocritical? Yeah, for sure. And it feels like there's a few different aspects with the label um, and, and, and ways that Christians get uh, accused of hypocrisy. So certainly there's that kind of political realm and the kind of connection with republicanism and all that stands for. Mm. Uh, but there's also, yeah, different aspects to it as well. And you put them in three categories, which I think are quite helpful. So you, mm. you talk about uh, political evangelicals, cultural evangelicals, and theological evangelicals. Mm. Now, some fit into all three. Most are probably one or two of those categories. But could you briefly uh, tell us about each of those categories? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with the theological evangelical, which is what the term I, I think sort of originally meant and it's a term that's been around for about 500 years, actually. And what it refers to is people who are committed to the evangel. That's what evangelical means. The evangel is an English translation of the Greek word that means the gospel or the good news. Mm. So a theological evangelical is committed to the gospel, committed to the good news, that God sent his son into the world, that we, uh, his created but rebellious people might come into know into a relationship with God to know him and to live with him forever. And this is incredibly good news. That's a very truncated version 
of what we might call the gospel. But hmm. that, that's what, a, and there's certain theological commitments that go with that, um, such as like the authority of the scriptures, the, the importance of the Bible in the Christian life, and that sort of thing. So that's the theological evangelical. And for many evangelicals, that's what they mean when they use the term themselves. And they're sort of not embarrassed of the term when it means that. The problem is it doesn't mean that out there in the public square most of the time. And then you get cultural evangelicals. So what happens is um, the theological evangelicals, they plant churches, okay, and they serve in churches or whatever, and they go along to church, and then that creates a community around this kind of theological evangelicalism, and that creates a cultural evangelicalism. So people who may go to church, people who may hang out with these sorts of people, these sorts of Christians, and maybe adopt similar worldview, uh, adopt similar you know patterns of clothing, how they spend their time, you know, all that sort of stuff, what they think about school and, and all that. And then they're not necessarily theological evangelicals in the sense that they have these these sort of commitments theologically that they've actually thought through and committed themselves to. But they're they're sort of they're in that ballpark culturally, you know, and they're sort of running with the crowd, if that makes sense. Yeah. Growing up in the subculture. Yeah, you grew up in the subculture. And even if you have private doubts or you don't really believe all this stuff, you know. Um, you're still sort of like, yeah, I'm an evangelical, that sort of thing. Um, and then the political evangelical is the one that really tends to be on the right side of politics, and they're using the term evangelical in a way that has uh, certain power and cachet in the political context in America, especially. And um, they want to jump on that bandwagon and fight for the things that evangelicals care about, which is you know against abortion, against gay marriage, against uh, gender dysphoria, you know, all that sort of stuff and yet pro-guns and, and pro the Mexican border wall and pro this sort of stuff. Um, so th- what you find is a pretty big disconnect in the end between the theological evangelical at one end and the political evangelical at the other. Some people do span all three, as you mentioned, but actually the theological evangelical is really concerned to consider what Jesus says, um, what the Bible says, and that is often going to come into sharp relief in comparison to what political evangelicals say. Absolutely. Um, and so tapping into kind of the the political side there, like you're talking about like mostly a, a movement, isn't it? Like a voting block. Um, mm. And um, mm. this is kind of bared out in a lot of research as well. Um, so you've got, according to sociologist um, Samuel Perry, um, people are now ticking evangelical who haven't gone to church for like 20 years um, or you'll, you'll see uh, Catholic or Muslim evangelicals. Mm. Um, so people that clearly don't sign up to the theological side, but they're signing up to the political voting block movement side. Yeah. And you lived in the States, so you've seen a lot of this firsthand. Mm. Can you tell us about just the, the power of civic religion in the US and how evangelicals view things like the constitution and guns and political power and why things like the Make America Great Again movement uh, is so persuasive and powerful and part of their identity? Yeah, it goes right back to the roots of European colonies in North America, where and and many of those early Americans were Puritans. They were Christians who were, you know, basically escaping religious persecution in Europe because of their brand of Christianity, not just a different their brand of religion, but just a brand of Christianity and the freedom that America wrought was a very important part of their identities. And so I think the number one American value is actually 
personal freedom. And in that case, the freedom to exercise their faith as they see fit and without threat of persecution. Mm. But what that meant was that quickly evolved into this sense that America is actually, you know, God's city on a hill. It's especially blessed by God, even so far as to say this is God's country in extreme versions of it. And that view has persisted for hundreds of years and has not abated, even though lots of Americans don't believe in God. <laughs> Anyone who lives there can see that, you know, it's hardly some sort of godly paradise. It's, it's far from that. But nevertheless, there is this sense that everything that's, you know, like purely American, like the Constitution, like your freedom, like even your right to bear arms, which is part of the, you know, Second Amendment, it takes on a semi-sacred status. I don't think any Christian would say, oh, this is on the same level as the Bible or something like that. It's not scripture, but it does have this reverence around it that is tied up with what they call, um, you know, American civil religion, where basically the the civil institutions like the Constitution, um, like the presidency, the political process, Supreme Court, are, are endowed with this sort of above human kind of status and they're inviolable, you know. That's created so many problems because, for one, it makes it difficult to critique. Yeah. So it's really hard to get gun reform. First of all, Americans love their guns, so that makes it hard. But second, you know, it's like how dare you try to take away this constitutional right? You know, it's like taking away one of the Ten Commandments or something, um, you know. And so it's difficult to critique. But also the other problem is the Christian belief and worship gets really mingled into civic religion. So it becomes very difficult for some American Christians to disentangle the difference between their Americanism and their their Christian views, and that it sort of becomes a syncretic reality where the two are blended into each other. And in terms of Australia, it's not quite the same, is it, in terms of that civic religion influence? No, not at all. I think it's far from that here in Australia. Um, Australia is quite secular, uh, culture and even the way we think about Australia, like um, you know, I think Australian culture is generally favourable about Australia. And I would say I've become more in favour of Australia having lived overseas. And I appreciate how good things are and how healthy um, certain aspects of our culture are here. Um, but also, we we started off the European Australia anyway. Started off you know as convicts, and so <laughs> there's this there's this sort of um, underdog, subversive, like anti-authoritarian, tall poppy syndrome type nature to Australian culture, which actually makes it very easy to criticise. In fact, um, you could say one of our drawbacks as a country is that we're a nation of whingers or bloody whingers, you know, um, because we complain about everything, even though comparatively we've, we've got it so good in this country. So, you know, but but the plus side is it's easy to critique leaders. It's easy to critique faulty systems. It's easy to do that because, you know, we have permission to do that. And so um, one of your chapters uh, I thought was quite powerful was on exclusion zones where you look at things like sexuality, gender and race and, um, and mostly say that white evangelicalism has typically been pretty unwelcoming to these um, these minority groups and issues. So most people, when they think of Jesus, when they read the Gospels, would see someone who is pretty fundamentally inclusive and speaks to all kinds of people. So maybe could you share why you think evangelicalism has this enormous disconnect with the marginalised? 
Yeah, well, first up, I want to say that there's a difference between the way individual evangelicals might behave and the way that evangelicals as a group or as a culture or as a voting bloc might behave. So almost without exception, all the evangelicals I met in the United States were wonderful people. Um, They were lovely. They they certainly would be inclusive. I'm sure there are others who are, you know, not nice people. Um, But you could say that about any sort of group. But as a bloc, you know, they're trying to get their way morally on the national and political stage in a way that is opposed to other people's vision of the good life. And so evangelicals share a different worldview compared to many other Americans. What right do American evangelicals have to enforce the principles that come out of their worldview on others who don't share that worldview? You know, it doesn't really make sense. And it's actually the opposite of what the opposite of the principles that the nation was founded on, which is that you do have the freedom to worship as you choose. You, and that might be secular atheism, if that's what you choose. You wouldn't call it worship, I guess, but you know what I mean? Um, and it, it's failing to respect that and saying, no, this is a Christian country. You know, we're founded on Christian principles. And even if we weren't, this is right because we believe God is right. We believe the Bible is right. And so even if you don't believe it, it's still right. So we're just going to bulldoze you with it. Okay. And that's just not, healthy and it's not realistic and it's it's not in keeping with the way the early church went about things in the roman empire in the first couple of centuries after jesus yeah it's a fundamental like um quite a posture shift really isn't it that mm. um like for so much of christian history uh, at least like yeah, the, the the early church and the first few centuries christianity is on the margins and not seeking power um but then, yeah, obviously a lot of things change with Constantine and after that. Yeah. And it's kind of this hangover from, I don't know, some, some attitudes from that that are almost like there's an entitledness. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, I, I think so. And it, and it sort of, I think, misunderstands what Christians' goals should be or what, what the mission should be. So in Matthew 28, right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, we know that as the Great Commission. Um, so Jesus' Great Commission is to go and help people consider Jesus. You know, who was Jesus? What was his message? And am I going to follow him or not? And that's, that is the Great Commission of the church, not to create a Christian country, not to overpower those who think differently, not to get your way by political power and political means, not to bulldoze your enemy. You know, these things, not only are they antithetical to the teaching of Jesus, but they actually make it impossible to fulfill the Great Commission Mm. because no one wants to listen to you guys, a bunch of hypocrites, talking about Jesus when you're actually sell your soul to the devil. Might be a bit harsh there, but, you know, that is what it is. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like the relationship with power is a fraught one, regardless of where you're from. Um, and for Christians, it's a it's a weird thing for a Christian to seek and cling to power, yeah. um, because obviously Jesus gives up his power. Um, that's right. That's exactly right. So one of your really interesting chapters, uh, which I'm keen to hear you elaborate on a bit, um, you have a chapter on tribalism, and, and in particular, you're kind of talking about the theological side of things. So the way that Christians understand the world and part of our message mm. and in particular, you look at the way that Christians present 
the Christian message, the gospel, the the kind of basis there of evangelicalism, the good news. Mm. Um, and you talk about evangelicalism generally having a fairly rigid approach to the way that we talk about God and uh, and Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And the main example of this is the way that the Christian community somewhat fixates on the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, mm. uh, which is the idea of Jesus taking our place, taking up taking the punishment that we deserve when he died on the cross and him then atoning for our sins. Um, So I absolutely affirm that as truth and it's a central doctrine to what Christians believe. I imagine it's the same for you, uh, Con. Mm. So it's Mm. a fundamental belief of Christianity and like an absolutely correct way to understand and make sense of Jesus' death on the cross. But the really interesting thing that you talk about is the the kind of flow-on effects at a cultural level when this is presented as the only way to talk about God's love, Mm. Um, this kind of one-dimensional presentation of how rich God's love is and his character. So you make the point that this overemphasis on individual atonement actually diminishes evangelicalism's ability to deal with complex cultural and societal structural problems. Mm. Um, so could you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, sure. There's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, first with the tribalism, you know, I'm sort of arguing that while evangelicals say the Bible is their highest authority, it's actually an evangelical way of reading the Bible that is the highest authority in practice. And there's a tribal way of reading the Bible that prioritizes certain themes and marginalizes other themes, and that's just the reality. So one of those themes that are prioritized is PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement. And like you, I agree that is there. It is there. Many scholars argue it's not there, um, so it is a debated question in the academy. But I think it is clear that um, what we refer to there of Jesus dying for our sins is taught in the New Testament. But the thing is, it's not the only thing that's taught. And it's not even the only thing that's taught about how, you know, what Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross. If you ask an evangelical, what did Jesus accomplish by dying on the cross? Well, he died for my sins, to take my sins away so I can have a relationship with God, full stop. And I think that is true, but that is actually a truncation of the truth. Um, There's so much more going on in the New Testament. So the evangelical answer, in my view, is thin, whereas the Bible is thick. And um, the problem, though, with tribal readings or a tribal way of reading the text is you go looking for the things that you're looking for in the text, and that's what you find, rather than finding what's actually in the text other things that you miss. And the way I put it in the book is we're so focused on things that are true that it blinds us to other things that are also true. So what that means is, you, you know, we do have a, a very Western individualized understanding of the of the death of Jesus, partly product of our culture, partly product of this evangelical tribalism, to read it so individualistically. And we miss the corporate dimensions that Jesus actually came to redeem humanity as a whole, not just individuals, that, that the cross creates a community of people who are reconciled to God through the cross and therefore reconciled to each other. Also, evangelicals tend to so prioritize PSA that we think that that is the only important thing that God is doing and the only important thing that Christians and the church should be doing. And so that's a perfect opportunity to, um, hey, we're not going to care for the poor because we need to preach Jesus died for your sins, or we're not going to, you know, look out for uh, the disadvantaged, the marginalized, because 
you know, we've got to preach Jesus died for your sins, you know. And so there's this sense that your spiritual, your greatest spiritual need is to have your sins forgiven. And so your physical need or your community need or whatever, that's secondary at best. And I feel totally justified to sort of like, don't worry about that. That's just temporary anyway. And you're going to die. And the question is, are you going to go to heaven or not? So effort, and that's for eternity. So that really is way more important. And I know I'm caricaturing and simplifying, but that's sort of that's sort of what happens in effect. Whereas if you read the whole Bible, you see that God has a real concern for the poor and the marginalized, for widows and orphans. In the New Testament, James even says this is true religion to care for widows. You know, that's true religion. So and God says in Micah, He desires justice and mercy. That's what He wants to see. In his people, um, and so to claim because of PSA that your earthly needs are unimportant, or that it's not important for Christians in the church to care about social issues, to care about the marginalized, it's just you're just not reading the Bible. One thing with that is that it, it's largely a perception thing as well, isn't it? Because obviously Christians do still make effort to care for the poor in their circle. Um, I mean, in, in Australia. A large portion of the charities are Christian-run, yeah. Um, yeah. and a lot of churches give to charities, those sorts of things. So it's not a thing of Christians don't believe in charity or anything like that, but mm. it's from a messaging point of view. It can give the impression that we don't care about mm. those things when we say, like, this person is hungry, but what they really need is to hear that they're a sinner and that they need to turn to God and then that will fix yeah. their life. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There is a messaging problem within and without outside the church. So within the church too, the message is often heard and received. So you might care for the poor, but it's sort of low down maybe in your list. You know, the preaching will prioritize often, of course we're generalizing, but often prioritize the spiritual over the earthly and, you know, forgiveness of sins over, well, pretty much everything else. Yeah. And you kind of see this as a touch point, don't you? Um, particularly when societal issues flare up. Mm. So obviously something like um, Black Lives Matter would be one of them. You've probably seen it with The Voice as well. Mm. There can sometimes be, because of this hyper-individualism, um, a suspicion and mistrust of social action because of the highly individualistic nature and the thing that people need most is to be reconciled to God. Yeah, yeah it can kind of come at a cost for that, like that, that Christians don't have anything to bring to the conversation about systemic issues? Like, is it, is, do you yeah. think that's fair? Is that kind of what you're talking about? I do think so. And I think partly in the mix here is in the last 150 years or so, a kind of uh, knee-jerk overreaction to things that evangelicals see as, as unhealthy or dangerous. So when in Cambridge, one of the Christian groups wanted to focus more on social issues, um, they also at the same time were downplaying the cross of Jesus and and the message of salvation, stuff like that. So other Christians at the university were like, okay, well, that means social action, that's liberal, and we're going to go hard the other way. And so you create a sort of like, well, they're doing it wrong, so we're going to do it the other way. But actually, that's also wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was better off because you know, prior to that, evangelicals had a very strong sense of social conscience. You know, it was evangelicals who abolished the British slave trade, mm. you know, and, and so many social justice um, causes like that prior to the 20th century. Um, you see it more recently w- when Pentecostalism really made a big splash and doing stuff with music 
And so a lot of evangelicals locally would say, well, Pentecostals do music. We're going to do music really bad. <laughs> We're going to show that our priority is not music because it's not about the music. It's about the preaching and it's about the Bible. Well, you know, <laughs> I agree that it's about preaching the Bible, but it, it's also wrong to do the music bad, you know? And then, again, prior to that sort of dichotomy, you had evangelicals at the forefront of culture, at the forefront of music and the arts and architecture. And now evangelicalism, you know, we, we're sort of forced to worship in really bland buildings with really bad music and, you know, really daggy movies and like all this stuff that cultural output is horrible because we sort of cashed in um, any sort of cultural expertise for the sake of like preaching the gospel, you know, and it's just a, it's a false dichotomy because it's God's world. Yeah. Right? I believe um, the arts, the arts belong to him as well as the Bible. And we don't just live in this life where the only thing that matters is eternal life and nothing in, in this life and culture and the arts has any bearing. Yeah, and obviously, like, God cares about our soul and our eternal well-being, but he also cares about the here and now, um, the widow, the, yeah. the stranger, the marginalised, um, those who are deprived of justice. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there's there's absolutely a way in which Christians historically have been able to do it really holistically yeah. to get all these things right, but that's right. Uh, maybe we're in a state where we're a bit more fragmented and that suspicion inhibits uh, certain parts of evangelicalism to yeah have that holistic approach. Yeah, that's right. And I think the going back to the American political situation, that sort of reacting against means that political evangelicals are opposing things that are actually very Christian things. Mm. And but that's because well that's what they do, that's their side. So that's liberal left stuff and that's wrong, that's evil, you know. And I'm like, man, you know, just go back to Jesus and see what he thinks about that, you know. Oh, for sure. So moving on, you've got a, another chapter which you call Acceptable Sins, um, obviously with, with irony there. Mm. That might be something that, that some people have misunderstood. But um, you talk about the evangelical shame tax that people feel with things like uh, spiritual doubt or people's sexual histories and, and maybe some failings or political views, opposition to the tribe, those sorts of things. Yeah. Then there are other things like arrogance, bullying, jerkish behaviour, which seemingly get a much longer leash, if not a, like, total free pass. Um, mm, yeah. So obviously that doesn't really line up at all with how Jesus spoke on all these things. Mm. Um, could you talk more about the sins that evangelicals tend to focus on and which ones get overlooked? Yeah, sure. So this is one of the other issues that come from a sort of strong tribalism, that the tribe sort of creates a vibe around what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And this is often not articulated. So, of course, if you ask an evangelical, is it okay to be proud? They would say, no, of course not. You know, there are plenty of warnings in the Bible against being proud. But in practice, you pretty much get away with it. Like, it's easy to get away with being proud in the evangelical church. But if you commit sexual sin, especially if you're a leader and especially if it's, you know, adultery or homosexuality or something like that, um, then it's scandalous and it is scandalized. Um, now, of course, most evangelicals will say, well, all sin is sin. And that is a, well, it's kind of a biblical truth that, you know, there's a sort of democracy in sin, if you like. Uh, it's all ultimately 
stuff that alienates you from God and from it, from other people, um, regardless of what it is. But the Bible actually puts a priority on some sins because of their especially destructive nature or because of the way that they actually, they're like gateway sins. You know, they're like, they lead to other things. And I argue in the book that the most biblical sin <laughs> is pride because pride actually is incompatible with Jesus' message and teaching. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. And it's impossible to do that if you are full of pride. Um, You can't repent. Repent means to change your mind, to turn around, to go in a different direction. That requires some humility Hmm. to say, you know, uh, actually, I don't know where I am going. I think I'm going the wrong way. I'm going to turn around. That takes humility. Yeah. It's difficult to do that if you have if you're proud, but also to repent, believe, to believe, to trust, to have allegiance to Jesus uh, also takes humility because you're actually saying, "I'm putting my life in the hands of someone else," and you know a proudful person often will struggle to do that. So pride is is deadly. God even says, "I hate the proud." You know that's such strong language. You know, where does he say that about, you know, any other sin? Yeah. It's it's pride that he hates. Um, and yet that is the that is one of the sins that evangelical churches and evangelical culture in general just sort of like it just doesn't seem very serious. And and you can even Christianize it, you can baptize it, just like you can Christianize and baptize greed. You know, so you are, so it's God's blessing, you know, oh, very, very blessed, da, 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 da. and you're living in a seven-bedroom mansion and a private jet. Like, it's too easily excused. And there's a, long, there's a long list of these sorts of things, but suffice to say there's an imbalance with the way uh, evangelical culture and churches deal with these issues, and especially when compared to Jesus and the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, that ties in nicely with the next uh, section as well. I'm going to combine a couple of chapters there. You um, you talk about megachurch pastors mm. uh, and the lunatic fringe. So yeah. we're, we're going to do that all in one go. Okay, cool. And um, <laughs> and these are the stories that undoubtedly people are most likely to hear about uh, from the media, in the media, just all sorts of falls from grace, scandals, that sort of thing. Um, they're the ones that get the, the, the juicy coverage. Um, obviously, Hillsong is having their... Moment in the sun, or would you say a moment in the shadows? Yeah. I, I don't know what you'd call it, yeah. but um, yeah. But so things like televangelists, prosperity gospel grifters, celebrity narcissist pastors. Mm. Why do these types do such a disservice to the wider Christian message and scene? Mm. Look, uh, in, to be honest, in so many ways, and uh, and let me just add a caveat though before I continue that there are many good things that some mega churches do and a lot of mega churches and that the definition for that technically is a weekly attendance of more than 2000 people there aren't that many mm. in australia but there are about 2000 or more mega churches in america that fit that description and um some of them do great work so i don't want to be disparaging of all mega churches but there are certain things about the structure of the mega church and about cultures that mega churches tend to promote that are incredibly unhealthy and right at the heart of it is the celebrity pastor, uh, usually a guy, uh, but not a West, but usually the guy in the spotlight who who is a bit of a stand-up comedian who can, you know, preach eloquently, 
without notes and really engagingly, and churches adore them, and that's why they come to church to hear this guy preach. Um, if they're not preaching, they'll be di- really disappointed. And there's this celebrity, cult of celebrity, that I think is really unchristian because Christianity and Jesus prioritize the humble and prioritize the sort of like the meek shall inherit the earth. We don't want to create these Christian superheroes who, you know, believe their own press and sort of model this is what it's like to be successful as a Christian. To be successful as a Christian is to be humble and to be loving, yeah. to love God and to love your neighbor. That's that's success as a Christian, to be faithful. And often those things are not very sexy, but that's actually <laughs> the reality of it. Also, you know, megachurches, I think, promote this subtext that bigger is better. And again, that's not a Christian idea. Bigger is not necessarily better. And that's a it's a very American kind of thing. Bigger is better. We've got the best church because it's the biggest church. You know, that's how you measure what makes a good church. And that's just ridiculous. Mm. You know, the Bible talks about building the church, but it doesn't mean in number. It means in maturity, in faithfulness, in love for one another. So a really good church will be one where people are growing as people, not simply growing in number. So the the megachurches grow in number, but they're, they're really actually ineffective in helping individuals to grow, to become more like Jesus, if I can put it like that. Yeah, yeah, and that whole chapter goes into like a number of aspects related to that and how it's kind of almost like a, a corporatization of the church that kind of eats all the smaller ones um, and yeah. encourages behaviour that is much more distant, less invested, serving less, um, less connected with the community, with the wider community. Yeah. So, yeah, a heap of issues with that one. Yeah. So kind of zooming in on the lunatic fringe types, mm. um, often these two things can go hand in hand a little bit. Mm. Um, you talk about them promoting things like prosperity, self-help and nationalism, mm. um, that they're kind of mm. smuggled in there, um, when really they're pretty detached and contradictory from Jesus' teaching and and really they, they kind of undermine what he actually asks of his followers as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you want to elaborate on those things? Well, I think the most classic anecdote uh, comes from Paula White, who was Trump's evangelical advisor. Okay, so this is like, you know, basically a national position in Trump's White House to advise the president on evangelicalism. And Paula White said, and she's a megachurch pastor, said, anyone who tells you to deny yourself is from the devil. <laughs> now, one of the, in, in case some of our hearers don't know, one of Jesus' most famous teachings is deny yourself. <laughs> Take up your cross and follow me. So it's like, it's just such basic, it's so basic Christian knowledge that it, it's shocking on so many levels that she would say that publicly. Mm. Um, that, first of all, she's basically saying, she has a total ignorance of the teaching of Jesus because Jesus taught that. And second, she seems to have an ignorance of what Christianity is about, which is about self-sacrificial love, a love that lays down yourself for the sake of someone else. And so to say what she said, which is you know, to deny yourself, anyone who says that's from the devil, is just like so, it's such an incredible distortion and so alarming. 
so that serves as an anecdote to tap into what's wrong, wrong with the prosperity gospel, which is basically the our totally unchristian view that really all God wants for you is to be happy, to have lots of money, to live, have a nice house in the suburbs, um, and and that's that's what being a Christian is about. Well, that, if you read the New Testament, you you would never get that picture. No, <laughs> you get the you get the opposite picture. No, the godly godly life involves persecution. Yeah, two Timothy. That's right, chapter three. So, uh, yeah, and so on and so on. You know, we could go on all day about those problems. And so, moving to the final part, um, you, let's get back to the labels, which we kind of started with. Your final chapter there is called Saving Faith, and it's um, it's kind of like a what's mm. next chapter. Mm. You talk about no longer identifying as an evangelical, and that you simply go with um, Anglican now. Mm. And then, as well, that with the label, we can either keep it redefine it or ditch it. Um, but you kind of make the case that there's freedom in not having a label. Um, so could you share the joys of not being able to be put in a box? Yeah, sure. Well, I personally enjoy it, especially as a jazz musician. Maybe there's a slight rebellious streak there where, you know, I don't want to be told I'm in this camp or that camp. But for other people, it's difficult because they're sort of like, well, then what are you? You know, and I'm like, what? why does it matter? Is it because you're trying to understand where I fit vis-a-vis your tribe? Is that is that the issue? And so I actually think not so quickly adopting labels helps us to remove some of the barriers that tribalism creates. You know, if you can say, okay, well, this person, this person loves Jesus. So, you know, we've got so much in common. It doesn't really matter about the things that we we might disagree on or or not share that that doesn't matter like let's just you know it's cool you're into Jesus me too great all right let's go you know and i feel like that's a some would say very simplistic but i i think it's simple in a good way and and Jesus made it pretty simple when he said this is how people are going to know you're my disciples if you love one another that's so simple but it's so telling and it's still now 2000 years later it's still the litmus test because if you're hating on your enemy, then you're really not being a disciple of Jesus, at least not in that moment, you know? So I, I, I kind of enjoy not having a label. People might call, put other labels on me. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know, because the Christian message is uh, the only label I need is Jesus, okay? And if I'm stuck on him, it doesn't matter. The rest really doesn't matter. Plus, you know, in that chapter I argue that the – the label evangelical is dying, if not already dead, because of the way that um, evangelicals have behaved on the one hand, and also the the way the term has been and is being used because meaning is determined by usage, yeah. not by the, the dictionary. It's determined by how people use the word. That's what a word means. So if people are using the word evangelical to mean a white Christian nationalist who votes for Donald Trump, then no, I'm not an evangelical and I don't want to be. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Mm. Another word that's kind of come out of these conversations is um, the ex-evangelical movement, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but you you offer a totally Greek geek alternative. Um, you call it the ex-angelical. Mm. You, you dropped the V there. Yeah. <laughs> Could you tell us what you mean by that? Well, unlike ex-evangelical, ex-angelical actually comes from an existing Greek word, ex-angelo. There's no ex-evangelo. There's no, you know, that word doesn't exist in ancient Greek. They've just really inserted um, an X in the word evangelical uh, to make ex-evangelical, and it's a bit clumsy and hard to say. But ex-angelical... <laughs> 
uh, I would say is the type of Christian who, um, in keeping with the, the Greek word, someone who calls out. And so in that sense, you know, maybe I, I could resonate with that, that, you know, in my book, I'm trying to call out the evangelical movement. But it, it shouldn't just be restricted to calling out evangelicals, but wherever you see injustice, wherever you see hypocrisy, wherever you see corruption, and not for the sake of judgmentalism or looking down on people, but for the sake of health, of, of health, or for the sake of reform, for the sake of love, you know, because sometimes the loving thing to do is to call something out as hard as that can be sometimes. Yeah, and it's about caring for the, the wider movement as well. Um but also people that are looking in from the outside, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's yeah. It, like, yeah, we, we want, as a Christian community of believers, we want to be known for our love, as you were talking about before, um, for our good deeds and for being a, a force for good in society. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking when it's the opposite, when yeah. the Christian community is seen, whether it, whether that's the reality or whether it's just perception. Yeah. But You've kind of already lost, in a sense, if it is the perception. Yeah. Um, if the if the church is seen as cruel and uh, uncaring, divisive, all these things that you, you talk about in your book. Totally. So yeah, I completely see what you mean there. Mm. Maybe one thing. Um, so we talked about evangelicalism there. It would be good just to delve into that a little bit. So mm-hmm. yeah. my understanding of it is that particularly over the last few years since 2016 and onwards with with the rise of Donald Trump there like the the evangelical in the in the theological sense um, has been bleeding young people mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of people walking away because of the church's politics mm-hmm. um, and so uh, yeah you've got these usually quite prominent Christians like whether it's like musicians or pastors or different people who have mm-hmm walked away from the institution of Christianity. Some of them have lost their faith completely. Do, do you have any kind of thoughts or comments about the ex-evangelical movement, particularly for someone who's not um, like thinking of those who aren't Christians and maybe haven't heard of this stuff? Yeah. Well, what are your thoughts on, on that whole scene? Well, I guess at first I thought, oh, maybe I'm an ex-evangelical because I just took it on face value that someone that who you know wants to distance themselves from evangelicalism or, or just even from the the name, the term evangelical, uh, but but actually as a movement, it's I mean it's it's probably hard to pull it all together into one categorization, but um, it tends to be sort of quite disgruntled and sometimes not seeking to follow Jesus at all, and often not sort of seeking to um, engage with other believers, saying it. A church or, or whatever. So it's basically saying, you know, I, I probably grew up evangelical and I'm done with that. Thank you very much, you know. And I, I guess I don't identify with that because I still want to follow Jesus and I still want to read the Bible and I still want to hang out with other people who do those things too. I think that for me personally, I don't think ex-evangelical is the is the right label. I'm eschewing labels anyway, as you know, so it doesn't yeah. matter. But, but, uh, you and your jazz. Yeah, that's right. I'm just bebopping all over this baby. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, but it does seem to characterize the ex evangelical movement. And, uh, and perhaps I'm misunderstood it or, you know, or caricaturing it unfairly, but I don't want to be that negative. And I, I think it, it's, it's difficult because I guess sometimes it's easier just to wholesale reject something, you know. And it's much more difficult to sort of be more in the middle and say, well, yeah, I totally reject 
denounce these elements. I totally, you know, denounce these elements here, but on the same, I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not going to give up on Jesus just because evangelicals being idiots, you know. I mean, no one would be a Christian at all anymore if we rejected the church every time Christians did something dumb because Christians have been doing something dumb for 2,000 years, right? But early on in my Christian journey, I had to make a, a distinction between Jesus and the people who follow Jesus, you know? And the people following Jesus are just like me, um, idiots, no offense, um, but, you know, like but we're flawed human beings, you know, we make mistakes, myself included, right? And so we don't, we don't assess the veracity of, of the claims about Jesus based on or solely based on his followers, we have to look to Jesus himself. And um, when you do that, it's like, well, yeah, I'm still, I still want to, I'm still into that. Uh, um, and to stand there and hold that position, though, I understand can be tricky. It's, it's complicated. But for me, that's worth it. And for others, I guess they've just had enough and they want to be done with it. And I, I understand that too. Yeah, I think that's that's really well put. And it's like it's one thing to be disillusioned with the church um, and with particularly that that political evangelical movement and all the damage that that's done. Um, but it's a, it's another thing completely to then be disillusioned with Christ Himself. Um, yeah, yeah. So you, yeah, we wouldn't want to lose that. Yeah, um, that's it. Normally we close out by asking for three resources, but to be honest, I don't think anyone's going to be particularly jumping out of their skins to explore evangelicalism and hypocrisy. <laughs> um, <laughs> you show uh, a bit of data that shows that, that, that Jesus is much more popular than evangelicals, um, which is, is no surprise really. So maybe let's wrap up and you can give three reasons to investigate Jesus himself. Yeah, I'll give three different approaches. One would be um, the historical reason. So regardless of your worldview, regardless of what you believe, you can't deny historically that Jesus is a massively important figure. And if you don't realize that, then I'd encourage someone to look into it because that is the reality. Massively influential, you know, for Western politics, for Western culture, for, for Western worldview, and not just in the West. Um, all around the world. And so if you don't know a lot about Jesus, then it's sort of like the smart thing to do, learn about him. In the same way you might say it's important to learn about Mahatma Gandhi or Abraham Lincoln, I would say. People who have really influenced our world are worth learning about because you understand our world better, and they're often really inspiring individuals. So there's a purely historical reason. Another would be the, a religious reason, which is the, the biggest, and this might come as a surprise to some listeners, but the biggest religion in the world today still is Christianity. And it's, it's still huge. Maybe in the West, maybe in secular Australia, you think, oh, Christianity's you know, dying out. It's, no one does that anymore. So not true. Uh, around the world, you know, Christians in Asia, it's just exploding. In Africa, it's exploding. In South America, it's exploding. So the West might have had its day, but Christianity is still and will continue to be a global force to reckon with. So if you want to be someone who's knowledgeable about the world and how people believe, like like a big chunk of the world and understand where they're coming from, then you should have a look at Jesus and check him out. And, and finally, the, I'd say there's a personal reason. You know, I've been talking a lot about the fact that I want to follow Jesus in spite of all this dumb stuff that Christians do and continue to do. Um, 
because, you know, Jesus changed my life and he's changed the life of billions of people over the last 2,000 years. Why is that? What is it about him? I mean, have you just heard about Jesus as a figure? Maybe you know some quotes like love your enemy um, or the golden rule or something like that. But have you actually read what he said and tracked with what he did as recorded in the biographies about him? Like, I would just say do yourself a favor and you might it might change your life. Yeah, oh, awesome reflections, Con. I think we'll finish there because that's just the perfect way to end, I think. Great. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure having you on with us, Con. Thanks for giving us uh, your time. Yeah, tricky topic to talk about, but super valuable. So really appreciate you joining the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Aaron. I enjoyed chatting. someone was to quietly whisper the words white evangelical into your ear, would you shudder or would you tell them to go on? I'm guessing it wouldn't be the latter. That would of course be very strange. But I'm curious what words and associations pop into your brain when you think of Christianity and evangelicalism. Is it synonymous with hypocrisy for you, perhaps? Barna Research found that 71% of non-Christian Americans have a positive view of Jesus and yet only 36% see Christians in a positive light. According to them, hypocrisy of religious people is the top reason people give for not embracing Christian teaching. Or in an Australian context, McCrindle Research ran a comprehensive study in 2017, which found that after the sexual abuse scandals, hypocrisy was the second most common repellent for considering faith, with around 65% of respondents saying it significantly affected their perception of Christianity. They also said that seeing Christians live out their faith was one of the top things that would attract people to considering faith. There's a lot to pull apart in those sorts of studies and many others like it, but it's clear that hypocrisy continues to be a stinging indictment on the church. While evangelicalism in the US has some pretty significant differences and added baggage than it does here in Australia, it's still a word that is losing its original meaning as Colin was talking about. It's not about what it literally means, but how it's used and understood in the culture. I remember our friend and former colleague Steve McAlpine joking that maybe Christians should start calling themselves eschatological Christians rather than evangelicals. Because even though you'll have to explain what the heck that is, you at least won't have to explain all the things that it's not. And it sucks that Christians are just as vulnerable as anyone else when it comes to things like sex, money and power. Maybe even more vulnerable in some ways. Coming back to one of the things that Con discussed fairly early on, political evangelicals in the US... According to one study by a sociologist, Samuel Perry, in 2021, he notes that 68.4% of white evangelicals consider the founding documents of America, so the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, to be divinely inspired. Not only does this dramatically affect how American evangelicals see themselves as guardians of a particular way of life blessed by God, but it also affects how politicians might see them, ripe for manipulation perhaps. The feeling I get is that large swathes of American evangelicals have fallen into the trap of letting their politics shape their faith way more than their faith shapes their politics, being infiltrated by deeply unchristian ideas and people. And unfortunately, this has led to a spirit of hostility, fear, paranoia, and almost a nihilistic understanding of gaining and wielding power, a win-at-all-costs mentality, an ends-justify-the-means mentality. And as Christians... Well, we should be all about the means. That's the most important part. How we do things and whether we are characterised by love, generosity, sacrifice and honesty. And dare I say it, 
This win-at-all-costs mentality is the sort of thing that led to 81% of white evangelicals voting for Donald Trump in 2016 and then having that support increase in 2020, which has been a catastrophic allegiance for the church. When Trump was first elected, I heard people talking about how good it was that Trump had heaps of Christians around him in the White House. The hope was that they would be able to influence him and shape him and rehabilitate his character. But the reality was that he was reshaping those around him and even the national character of many churches to become more combative, more cruel, more compromised by enabling him, defending him and becoming like him. And he continues to bring this septic influence to American politics. Trump's ghostwriter for The Art of the Deal later shared that Donald Trump had a character black hole so large it continually threatens to pull everyone in around him. And that includes pastors who should know better. It's one thing for ordinary Christians to have some unusual ideas or character defects, but when it's being shouted out loud from high-profile Christian leaders, I imagine that leaves a pretty foul stench over evangelicalism. And for what it's worth, I want to apologise that the church has gotten it so wrong at times. But it's also worth noting that this kind of dynamic is predicted over and over again in Scripture. Jesus saves his most scathing criticism for the religious hypocrites. There's a brutal chapter in Matthew 23, I don't have time to read it all now. I'll link it in the show notes. But here's some snippets. So Jesus, going to the crowds and to his disciples, says this. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. He then lists seven woes, which is getting in dangerous offspring song territory. But he reels off some absolutely volcanic burns for the religious hypocrites for their greed, their self-dealing and their cruelty. Like this one. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You could easily swap rabbi or Pharisee for the the loud cartoonish characters that pop up in parts of the evangelical world. But I'm comforted that this type of misguided religiosity is condemned by Christ himself. Now, I'm not going to deny it, Hypocrisy is a major problem. While it's built into the theology and no one is immune from sin or misplaced desire or self-interest, it doesn't diminish the vile stench of it. I suspect people want to know that holiness and a better way of being is possible. And yet some scandals or fringe movements can deeply undermine the promise of life and the hope that Jesus offers. It's also worth noting that there's more to the story too. For all the baggage that comes with Christianity... Christians at an individual level, when they're described by people that know them, are more likely to be labelled as caring, loving and kind than they are judgmental. And 76% of Australians, according to McCrindle Research, believe churches make a positive difference to their local community. So I'd urge you to look beyond the headlines and the shocking things done by the relative few who aren't representative of global or historical Christianity and to see what local communities are doing as they go about their business, doing things quietly on a Sunday morning, in the home, or through acts of service. Most Christians give to charities at a higher level than the general public. And most Christians want to be known for their love. Now, I'm not saying that Christians are better than anyone else, but I am saying that the vast majority genuinely try to live their lives working out what it means to follow Christ. 
Sometimes we fail spectacularly, but more often than not, it makes a real, tangible, life-changing difference to ourselves, to our character, and the relationships around us. And I think that's the sort of thing that Jesus would happily identify with. This is Deeper Questions. If you like this episode, then subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you can check out some of our other content at thirdspace.org.au.